0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the fear of the new Omicron variant has triggered anxiety across Canada, according to a new survey done by Abacus Data. Oksana Kischak, the Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus, will join us to talk about that. Ontario's Auditor General released another annual report today. We'll give you the details on what's being covered in that. And based on what we know so far about the new variant, is Canada becoming too reactive with the new travel ban and reinstated travel testing? Oh, and listen, the Beatles' Get Back is now out. Why is it such a big deal, and why is it a must-watch? We'll tell you. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the
1: Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: We want to talk about how you and me and the rest of us, not just here in Canada, but around the world, are feeling about the, uh, the news about the Amicron uh, variant that uh, has reared its ugly head. Uh, I was going to say late last week, but uh, as uh, Dr. Moore told us, Dr. Kieran Moore, the Ontario Medical Officer of Health a little while ago, uh, said it's probably been around for a few weeks and we just haven't paid a whole lot of attention to it until all of a sudden identified cases. I believe there's something like four cases uh, in uh, in Ontario right now, and some concerned, and, and a few others in other parts of the country. So our good friends at Abacus Data have done some polling and said, hey, you know, what's the level of concern here? Because At first, the medical experts were saying, let's wait till we get more information about this before we start getting crazy here. But the more we're finding out about this, the more concern that there are uh, being expressed, that is being expressed, rather, uh, not just by medical officials, but I think by Canadians as well. So with the results of uh, what Abacus found out, we're pleased to welcome back to the program, Oksana Kiszczak, who is the Director of Strategy and Insights with uh, Abacus Data. Uh, Oksana, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Yeah, Thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you again.
0: You know, one of the things that jumped out at me as I was looking at some of the data that you guys have accumulated, are we becoming more or less worried? Uh, a month ago, 24% said they'd becoming more worried. After the news we got about what was going on more recently, that number's jumped up to 44%. So the, the news is resonating with us, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think certainly. I think tracking worry has been a really good measure of, of tracking kind of what's happening in the space and, and how people are reacting to, to the pandemic. And I think it's interesting to see... Um, after being in a pandemic for almost two years, a lot of the predictors that we saw that sort of impacted worry rising um, in the beginning. So things like case counts, um, new variants, kind of towards the middle, they're still sort of having that same impact on our level of worry than they were in the beginning.
0: And the demographic breakdown is interested about this too. It's always interesting when you guys do the demographic breakdown and say, okay, who are we talking about here? Older Canadians uh, seem to have more of a concern here than, the, than some of uh, the younger Canadians.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that kind of very clearly in our data. People who are 18 to 29 are kind of split three ways on whether they're more or less or about the same worried. where as um, people who are 60 and over, there's a very clear um, indication that the majority of them are becoming more and more worried.
0: One of the other ones that jumps out here, of course, too, is the unvaccinated. Uh, Mm -hmm. seem unmoved by this whole thing. You could argue that they're not paying much attention to it. I don't know what the rationale for that is, but that seems rather odd uh, that those that haven't bothered to use the protection that's available to them don't seem to care much about the fact that there's a new variant. That's rather surprising.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it, it looks a bit shocking at the beginning, because if you kind of think about um, all of the messaging that's gone on over the last years, the vaccine is the way out and is to help you become less worried and less susceptible to, to having negative and, and poor things happen to you um, should you get COVID. And so it, it seems sort of... Um, It doesn't make sense when you kind of look at it from that perspective. But I think uh, that really speaks to kind of the people who are unvaccinated at this point. Um, And maybe they don't feel um, that the pandemic, they've sort of made it this far without a vaccine. And so they're sort of unfazed by by those changes, whereas people who who got a vaccine um, may be more sort of in in line with kind of the messaging and, and sort of concern about the, the virus and sort of being able to do everything that they can to protect themselves and so um when something like a variant comes up and and i think early conversations were sort of unsure about um whether the vaccine would protect you or not um i think that sort of speaks to if uh, the people that are vaccinated are those that are kind of tracking and concerned about the virus and suddenly they feel like they they may not be able to be protected uh, anymore i think i think that sort of helps explain that number a little bit this is
0: important data that you guys have fixed up here, too, because, I mean, we've already seen governments, uh, the Canadian government and even the American government, uh, responding to the news about uh, what's happening with Omicron. And, and you know, there, there's been uh, the reevaluation of some of the travel restrictions and testing and things of this nature uh, that we seem to have maybe moved away from a little bit. We kind of let our guard down. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. a re- I, I guess, a reevaluation of that going on right now which I guess is really reflective of how the the public are dealing with this. I guess, you know, if we are more concerned, we're going to be looking to our leaders, aren't we, to say, okay, guys, what are you going to do about this?
1: Mm -hmm. I think sort of that combined with with what we're finding in these numbers is that the pandemic um, isn't over yet um, from a sort of science perspective and variant perspective, but also from a perceptions perspective, and that we're all still very susceptible to sort of following the news on what the pandemic is and adjusting our worry and behaviors accordingly.
0: Are are we worried or nervous or just apprehensive at this stage I, I i know there's a correlation between all three of those words but it just i, I think we, when you say worried I, we're not ready to hit the panic button i w- i don't think just yet and i think the data reflects that doesn't it mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say everyone's sort of going back back into their sort of isolation and, and stocking up on toilet paper again. But I think um, what the data is really showing is that people are sort of taking a pause and and they were maybe sort of easing back into to world, the world as we knew it pre-pandemic and maybe sort of booking a trip or um, going out for dinner a little bit more. And so I think what uh, the state is showing is that people are, are likely going to be taking a bit of a pause right now and maybe reevaluating what they are comfortable with um, and sort of how they're sort of going to ease out of the pandemic in their behavior
0: which is not really the best news for those of us that we're talking about economic recovery yes. <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know yes. you guys
0: have been t- you've been tracking that haven't you Xana but you know mm-hmm. hey, maybe we're getting a little more confident maybe we are going to go mm-hmm. and make some purchases over the holiday season uh, maybe we will take that trip uh, to go and visit family or friends or maybe do a sun location I, I, and I guess the worst case scenario here is everybody says, well, I don't think we're going to do that now, which is not the kind of news that, uh, that the economy needs at this sort of stage. Uh, and I know you guys are going to be tracking that over the next couple of days and weeks, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see just how far we're going to go with our apprehension.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sort of, kind of going back to your earlier point about um, it's not necessarily hitting the panic button, but I think hitting the pause button a little bit and sort of reevaluating. And so um, I'm not sure we'll see sort of um, a return to kind of people regressing in their behavior at all. But I think there might be sort of a, a slower and maybe pause a little bit about what people want to do. Um, I think for us, it'd be really interesting to see kind of the timing of all of this as we're sort of approaching the holidays. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think I spoke with you kind of before a couple other holidays in the pandemic and people were very apprehensive together. Um, Mother's Day, Father's Day—I think it was. People weren't so sure they wanted to see their loved ones during that time, and so it'll be interesting to track kind of how worry sort of shifts. Um, if, if all this news about the Omicron variant is—is is that it's the—the um, the vaccine is actually does a really good job to protect you and we've sort of gotten this under control if people sort of become less worried and and more comfortable kind of re-interacting and socializing with their family Um, or if um, it'll have no impact or if people will sort of second guess whether their their holiday plans will have to change
0: well i know that you guys are going to be tracking that by the way if they want to get details about uh, what we were just talking about here they can go to abacusdata.ca Uh, backslash uh, COVID anxiety, worry, and uh, all the details are on there. Uh, Great work, as always, by you guys at Abacus. Uh, Oksana, thank you so much for taking the time to explain it to us. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Take care. Oksana Kischuk is the Director of Strategy and Insights with uh, Abacus Data. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario politics is uh, heating up. Uh, More campaign promises coming out of uh, the opposition, and, well, the government for that matter, too. Uh, And joining us to talk about that and some of the implications, uh, Sabrina Nanji, who is the founder of Queen's Park Observer, uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Sabrina, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days.
2: Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Busy, busy morning.
0: Well, it is, and I know that uh, just about now as we're speaking, the Premier's making an announcement. We're told it's going to be about a uh, big, huge hospital project in Mississauga, which is great, but what better time to do that than the same time as the Ontario Auditor General releases another report about government spending. Uh, this is a classic situation of hey, look over here, not what they've got to say, because uh, there's uh, some interesting news in, in the auditor general's report too, and I guess that's how you play politics, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the the timing isn't lost on me, and I'm sure the conspiracy-minded folks out there might be, <laughs> might be questioning it, uh, but you're right, we're we're do, we're. Uh, tag-teaming this a little bit this morning here at Queen's Park today. um, We have the big Auditor General's report. It's actually just being released now. As as we're speaking, Um, this is the annual report from Auditor General Bonnie Lissick. Um, You know, thousands of pages of basically government failures over the last year. Everything from uh, weed sales to what's happening with Laurentian University um, and even, you know, COVID, the COVID PPE supply and, and business responses. And, you know, it's not a great look for the government. Um, you know, nothing against the, the Ford government in particular. No government um, ever really looks good in these types of audits. So, yes, we do have a good news announcement from the premier coming at the same time. Um, and I'm sure he'll be getting questions on on some of the findings in this report. Uh, so, so that will be interesting to hear.
0: Yeah, as it gets digested. And you're right. I I can't remember a report, an AG report from federal or provincial government anywhere where the AG just said, yeah, everything's cool here. Guys, great job. Keep going. Uh, but that's their job. And, you know, it's, it's to find some of the shortcomings. And one of the ones that uh, that I know that they're probably going to want to talk about in greater detail, and, and you're right, we're just kind of getting the, these information pieces as as we you and I are talking, is I know that the, the the Ford government and other governments have been very critical of the federal government for their uh, COVID relief spending. Simply said, you know, money went out the door and they didn't account for it. Well, apparently the same thing happened in Ontario. Uh, there's a lot of money that went out here for various programs, uh, and they're not sure exactly who got it. They think a lot of people who probably got it weren't qualified to get it. Uh, so there's there's some, some explaining to do, and, and as you say, the, the feedback and followed from that uh, is is going to be days and weeks in as people start to digest this and start to ask some questions. Of the government, but it's uh, it's it's not ever a, a good day for any government when the AG says, "Hey, uh, look at what you guys are doing."
2: No, you're absolutely right, and there's um, there's going to be plenty to sift through uh, over the coming days. Um, I'm really looking forward to sitting down on the, on the on the weekend and going through this in more detail. But some some things have already started to emerge um, as the big headline grabbing issues here. Um, you're right. You mentioned you know some of this COVID relief um, and what this Auditor General's report says is that the province. Um, gave out, you know, more than $200 million in um, relief to businesses that actually weren't eligible to um, receive those benefits. And according to the Auditor General, the province made no attempt to recover some of that money. Uh, you know, not, not the best value for money, and especially for the PC government in particular, you know, Ford has championed himself of being, uh, you know, uh, all about small businesses. He he supports them. And we know that there has been a bit of a rift there, especially, you know, because of lockdowns, uh, the restaurant industry, you know, really not happy with, with Ford these days. Um, and I'm sure after hearing this, they they will be incensed. You know, they've said that they don't have enough support as it is. And now hearing that some folks that, uh, you know, weren't entitled to these benefits have received it, uh, you know, not, not the, the best look here. Um, I'll be curious to see what Ford says about that. Um, On the other side, there's MZOs, you know, the the hot topic of the week. Um, or these days, and you know, the Auditor General had kind of called that out in her environmental audit, but it's being brought up again here in, in, in the actual uh, you know annual report audit. So she must be seeing this as a big problem. Um, and you know, the Ford government's use of these orders, which fast track development, um, she basically says, have undermined the planning process. And these orders have been in place for a very long time, but the the Ford government has used them um, much more prolifically than past governments. And we, we did see Stephen Del Duca promise to you know ban them I, I guess as we know it there are some exceptions there but i think that on on the environment this is one that's going to come back to bite the ford government as well
0: well especially because some of the i guess off the hand comments that the premier makes so uh, you know these are the things that that get reported on um, you know when he was talking about the mzo's i mean he he basically i think a quote was and we can't stand around waiting for all the regs and red tape uh, the regulations are in, in place for a reason uh, environmental concerns and things of this nature as we, they've argued uh, and you're right, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the MZOs have come up twice now in the last week in uh, reports from the Auditor General. I, I, I guess, you know, Mr. Del Duca on the Liberal side, and I'm sure Andrew Horvath is is going to jump on this. I mean, when they see, you know, political red meat like that, they jump all over it, figure, hey, now we've got something that we can really get into. I'm, I'm not so sure if it's going to turn the election around, but it's, you can bet it's going to be a hot
1: issue.
2: Yeah, and it's one of those, um I guess one of those situations that makes me hope that maybe during an election campaign we'll get some meaty policy um, platform uh, promises to dig into, which, you know, around campaign time, we don't always get to see the the work behind what these political parties are promising, but housing affordability development is definitely shaping up to be a big issue, and it does require some, some you know, intricate policy, uh, you know, decision making to, to deal with this issue. You know, obviously housing affordability is a huge problem. I think all parties and the public agrees with that. It's just, you know, how do we get there? And so with the Liberals saying we're going to get rid of these um, MZOs and, uh, you know, for projects like, you know, affordable housing, long-term care, that sort of thing, um, it, it does raise a lot of questions about, well, if you don't want to use this mechanism, um, because you think the Ford government is abusing it, how will you get these projects built fast? Um, what is the solution? And so, uh, you know, what my sources are saying on the ground is that the PCs are working on some legislation, uh, that will tackle this. Uh, you know, they, they might look at some, uh, speeding up of approval processes at the local level. We've heard the premier talk a lot about that ahead of the housing summit later this month with local leaders. Um, You know, not sure about the timing of this legislation from the PCs, but I'm sure that we'll see some changes before June um, and the next vote
0: yeah because they've got a pretty good idea what's uh, going to be under the microscope here when the ag goes and, and does their investigations and uh, you're right they probably want to get out in front of this as possible as much as they possibly can but as, as you've experienced uh they don't like it when when you know reporters as, as you know talented as you start connecting the dots for them uh, you know they, they just want to issue a press release and hopefully people will just take it at face value and not go there and maybe the best example of that over today aside from the ag's report uh, is the announcement that uh, that they're uh, reinstalling a lot of these uh, AV charging stations. Uh, I, I guess you know we as the public are supposed to forget about the fact that one of the first things he did when he got reelected was tore a bunch of them out. Uh, and now at our cost, he's he's going to put them back in there now because he's a believer in electric vehicles now. at least he, you know that's what he's hoping is going to happen here in the province of Ontario. But those those disconnected uh, you know financing policies and and, and spending sprees uh, by the government are the sorts of things that opposition parties just love to get their teeth into
2: yeah, and that's kind of the thing that's so great about auditor general reports um, even just in general for anyone who wants to hold the government to account, reporters, the public opposition critics um, because the AG she has access to a lot of behind the scenes documents um, she can interview a lot of high level folks that are working behind the scenes um, that you know reporters, the public we don't readily get to do that kind of stuff so she does have a lot more access um and you know it's not necessarily her job to say you know whether this is good or bad she's just assessing if this is a you know a valuable decision or not and i think that uh you know for the pcs in particular when you are championing yourselves as being you know fiscal guardians uh and and proper stewards that you know it's it probably stings a little bit more. I think one thing um, that the report also mentions is the uh, the, highways, the highway construction that the, the PCs are pushing forward with, um, especially, you know, the 413. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of details on that. And the opposition parties have asked her to look into it, uh, you know, a little more in depth because it's such a big part of the Ford government's re-election plan. Um, and, you know, she, she did kind of look into this and, and said that, you know, you know they at least the audit is you know um, inconsistent with some land use planning policies there so there is a little
0: is Sabrina still there
2: lighter yeah. traffic than, yeah. than maybe worrying about the the how we get there.
0: Yeah, and and we need to remind our listeners, of course, that the AG's report is is, is apolitical. I mean, she's just saying here are the facts. They will come out, and, and I'm assuming they will, when, as, with this report as they have with others. And, and they may say here are some recommendations how you might want to address this, uh, which opposition parties tend to just grab onto and say, "Aha, see that this," and that's probably going to be part of their their platform heading into the election. Uh, but it, it it's it's one of these things where they're going to, I guess, substantiate some of the things you said, as you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation. Uh, she mentioned second time in a week now, but uh, these ministerial zoning orders and how they seem to be trampling over uh, years and years of planning and about environmental studies and things of this nature. So it's going to be interesting to see just how the government responds to that. And as you said, uh, as you're hearing at Queens Park, that uh, they may actually be introducing some sort of legislation to kind of pivot away from some of this stuff. So uh, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, the, 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 the juxtaposition that's going to be going on over the next couple of days. And as we digest more of this, and, and as you do, I guess we'll be uh, talking more about uh, the report itself, uh, Sabrina, and the implications and how the government's going to respond. Uh, thanks, as always, for this, though. Pleasure to have you on a very busy day. Glad you could jump in with us for a few minutes.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Bill.
0: Take care. Sabrina and Angie, of course, founder of Queen's Park Observer. That's uh, the place you want to go to to find out uh, the scoop on what's happening at Queen's Park these days and uh, get some of the inside information glad you're with us today the bill kelly show right here on 900 chml and 980 cfpl uh we talked earlier about uh, what's happening uh vis-a-vis uh this new variant and and the concern that we all have about this and uh there's been discussion about travel bans again i know that's uh, bad news for an awful lot of people in the uh, tourism industry and the hospitality industry uh you know and there's some concern now at hey wait a second are we overreacting to this should we wait until we get more information Our government's going to jump all over this now because of what's happened in the past. I want to bring uh, Dr. Marion Joppy into the conversation. Dr. Joppy is a professor at the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Is there a concern within the industry right now that I mean, this is this is, you know, serious stuff. I mean, you know, we talk about a new variant and the Omicron variant and the the concern that we have about uh, we don't want to go down this road again about about travel bans and about lockdowns and things of this nature. And I don't think anybody's saying that's going to happen. Uh, But governments have been pretty quick to start instituting uh, some, if not bans, but some restrictions on some kinds of travel. Is that concerning to the industry?
2: Well, it is because, uh,
3: in part, because the industry had been lobbying quite hard to do away with the PCR tests um, to encourage international arrivals, and of course, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So, it's a it's a big setback for international arrivals into into Canada.
0: Well, as you and I talked about in a previous conversation, it seemed as if uh, we were starting to get our heads around this. Not that the, the pandemic was over. I don't think anybody was saying that. But maybe it's time to to, to ease some things and kind of get back into that and, and restore public confidence in in hospitality industry and especially in the travel industry. Uh, and that we seem to be at least going down that road. Uh, and I, I guess the concern now is, uh, does this mean we hit the pause button on that? It's it's not a very good time heading into the holiday season to see well uh, you know, maybe you better think twice about going on a trip.
3: Yes, and, and unfortunately uh we're definitely hitting a pause button. It's not going backwards with incoming uh, international travelers, because the restrictions on them are even more severe than on uh, Canadians returning, and, and that's always the issue. You you may be able to leave, but uh, are you able to come back? And as we have seen with the now ten countries um, where Canada is is banning essentially all arrivals, uh, they they have to travel to another country to get a PCR test. In order to board a flight to come to Canada uh, I mean that is that is incredibly restrictive
0: well and and you have to wonder about that And your, your points well taken I mean we've already seen some of the stories on global national and other newscasts about people that are basically stranded overseas uh, because these these travel bans have been placed into effect and we like can say it's not a whole lot of countries but it's a growing number uh, which pauses some concern and we've had discussions uh, with the, the city officials in some of the border towns, Niagara Falls and certainly down in, Oak, in uh, Windsor Way, Windsor, Detroit area, uh, the, those restrictions just seem to be relaxed and people are starting to cross the border again. And there was, a, I think, a great deal of enthusiasm in those cities about that cross-border traffic pumping up economies, local economies once again. And I know that the mayors of both cities have expressed concern that, hey, wait a second, this is not the right time to be hitting a pause.
3: Yes. uh, Right now, of course, uh, the restrictions are on uh, travelers arriving by air, but uh, the government has already hinted that uh, they may be looking at further restrictions for uh, travel by road, and that will definitely hit those cities very
0: hard. So how does the industry respond? I mean, yeah, just put yourself in, in, in a reactive mode here now, Professor, and just simply say, well, there's not much we can do about this. We we'll just have to respond to whatever the government decides they're going to do and how they're going to proceed here.
3: Unfortunately, that is exactly the response uh, because these announcements are being made without much consultation and they're being implemented immediately. Um, so there isn't even time for, for anybody to adjust. And uh, for travelers, that is really concerning because you may be able to leave, but you may not be able to return. Uh, you know, it's the opposite of the Hotel California song in some <laughs> yeah. ways.
0: You can um, check out anytime, but you can never leave. You can check out, but right. you may not get back.
3: You may not get back, exactly. And and that is, is really the worry uh, now, in some ways, it's it's good for the Canadian industry because people will likely change their travel plans and stay within Canada. Uh, but that's not the way we would like to grow the industry back to where it was.
0: One of the concerns previously, when, when some of these restrictions were put in place, Professor was the the fact that the industry itself had no idea what the, the parameters were, what the government was basing these decisions on, what information they were getting. You know, where did they set the bar for, okay, now we have to respond? Uh, I'm getting the sense from some of the people I've talked to over the last 48 hours that it's like deja vu all over again. That we still don't know what, where, you know what information the government is looking for and what that information is going to do towards determining what kind of policies they're going to start to initiate.
3: Uh, yes, that's that is a very good summary of what's currently happening, and everybody is just sort of in high alert. Um, even the the makers uh, of vaccine, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, have said that it'll be at least two weeks before they have preliminary results to know how effective the vaccines are against this uh, new variant, and we still don't know uh, how fast it's spreading. Or if it is, uh, you know, more severe some, than some of the other variants we've seen, um, indications are that it's spreading faster, but not as severe. But it's incredibly early in the days, um, and so the reaction really comes from the World Health Organization and uh, the the scientists in South Africa who have done an, an, a remarkable job in uh, identifying this this variant so quickly and letting the world know but they're paying a heavy price for having done so
0: well, we're all, I guess, nervously anticipating exactly what the next steps are. And I like I say, information is going to be the key to this. And uh, we're hoping that uh, that uh, there's going to be some some middle ground here that's going to help the economy to get back at the same time, keep us as safe as possible, too. Uh, Professor, as always, great to get your initiative and your input into what's going on here. I really appreciate your, uh, your perspective on uh, this very, very key issue. Thanks for spending some time with us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Marion Joppy, of course, at the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. First of all, just picture in your mind right now that iconic moment in rock and roll history, the rooftop of the Apple Recording Studios in London, England. And this was happening. The Beatles, get back, B. Three-part, six-hour docu-series directed by filmmaker Peter Jackson, focusing on the January 1969 sessions that yielded, the, well, just the Let It Be album, but also that famous rooftop concert. It's now out there, and it's uh, well, critics are going crazy about this whole thing. Jabez Olsen, who worked on the, uh, the Get Back uh, film with uh, Peter Jackson, uh, one of the great film editors, uh, says that uh, one of the things that makes it so great and so unique is the footage is so unique. You're close to them, you're, you're in the front row, they're playing great, you can see them really well, and, you know, compared to some of the other concert footage that exists of the Beatles, which f- it feels a bit remote and like you're watching from a long way back and it feels very much like a piece of uh, historical footage, this feels so personal and in your face that you're like, you're really there, and I think, you know, it is one of the great things to come out of this. Well, uh, everybody's jumping up and down about this, and, and why is it so big? <laughs> it's the Beatles. I mean, that's the, the obvious answer. Uh, to shed some light on that and some perspective. So pleased to welcome back to the program our good friend Eric Alpert, publicist and uh, music commentator. Eric, great to have you back with us. I hope you're doing well these days.
4: Yeah, everything's great. Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: I, I have not said I have not seen this in the interest of full disclosure uh, yet. I, of course, I plan to like like every other Beatle fan did. I I've been preparing myself for it though by, by re-listening <laughs> to my entire box set of the Beatles collection, the British uh, uh, editions of them, uh, to kind of get psyched up for this. Uh, this has been such a long time coming. There's been so much hype about this, and Eric, as you and I have talked about in the past, t- too many times, the hype. And, and then the, sh- the release. And the release does not meet the hype. Uh, the, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing right now is that it's, it's there. It, I, everything they said about this is absolutely true. This is just an incredible piece of art.
4: It's amazing um, how much geeks like me think about the Beatles and talk about the Beatles and listen to the Beatles. But to see eight hours of footage that you've never seen before, it kind of blows your mind a little bit. Thinking that this is them, like this is them in all their glory. They Peter Jackson whittled everything down from 57 hours of video and about 120 hours worth of audio, editing it together, restoring it, syncing it together, splicing it all up accurately. And the best thing is, and you know, I, I don't want to devalue this, but we've had such a miserable two years that Mm -hmm. it's kind of changing people's perception of what we thought the Beatles were. And that's almost impossible with the literally thousands of books out there on the Beatles. We all thought that they were miserable guys just couldn't stand one another. They got, some of them got married. Yoko Ono was in the room. She allegedly broke up the Beatles. It was nasty all around, but this new version of get back, kind of shows that they were still joking around that they were still four guys who loved rock and roll in the sixties in one of the most fruitful, glorious, beautiful decades ever in history. And as a fan, it kind of messed with my head a little bit because all these years <laughs> we thought one thing when really, I mean, maybe it's just editing, right? Like, you know, like you can get sure. anything to look like anything if you want it to be, especially in the age of a video. Um, but You know, it's not a revisionist history. I think that back then when those when this first aired, it kind of fit the narrative of why the Beatles broke up. And now that forty years, fifty years have passed, it's time for a fresh new look at exactly what had happened.
0: Well, because as you say, it's a perspective on this. I mean, there was a movie called Let It Be that talked about this very same time frame. And as a matter of fact, probably some of the same footage uh, is used in both. And you're right. The takeaway there was what a miserable bunch of guys. It's no wonder yeah. they broke up. You know, Ringo was <laughs> drinking heavily. Uh, George was yeah. peed off at and John. And, and John was being a bully. And Paul just didn't want to be with these. And Yoko broke them up, of course. And that was the takeaway we had from that movie. And, yeah, and, and, and and we thought, God, how they, these these guys were our heroes. How sad that it ended this way. And from what I'm hearing in in Peter Jackson's uh, masterpiece here, some of that conflict is still there because it did exist. But this it's it's under much broader context. Now and you say, okay, I like all four creative guys. There's going to be some arguments and some fights, but these guys really liked each other.
4: Yeah, look, John Lennon still comes across as a bully. And because he was, and you know, the conversations between John Lennon and Paul McCartney were how they talked to one another for years. John would be bitter and angry and funny, but he can cut you down like a tree with yep. just one line. Paul McCartney led the group when John Lennon kept going away with Yoko um, wanting to just be a normal, non-famous human being Ringo you know, kind of left the band, but came back. And, you know, we find out that he actually plays piano in some of the sessions. And George Martin, uh, but, but George Harrison, there was really no room for him in this group. Like, you know, we, they needed his guitar, but they, John and Paul were still controlling pretty much everything that was happening within that group. So their personalities, as we know them, shine really through. But it's also those moments that you think, that when it was just those guys in the room eventually they were getting there that was a strange thing about watching this is like watching george harrison work on a song like something and we know what the lyrics are. We know where he's going to go, but the fact that you get to see the band working through everything, you get to see Paul McCartney work on songs that will be on his solo albums, like another day and Teddy yeah. boy, you know, Oh Darling is in the film and it's on Abbey road that comes out the next album. So the, the fact that they're still working through Trying to get perfection as, as well as they know it um, was fascinating to watch because it's really, you know, it is about the Beatles, but it's also about what happens when you get true artists in a room with a ton of experimentation. When it's all said and done, they reach the genius level and they all insist on it.
0: I got the sense, and, and this is from uh, somebody who's been like you have followed the Beatles, uh, you know, forever and ever. Uh, and basing it kind of on, on the, the the Letter B movie, as you say, from uh, many, many years ago, uh, that said, you know, John and Paul fought all the time. But Paul, they, they've been buddies since they were kids. He he got John. In other words, yeah, okay, that's just the way he is. It rolled off his back. George was a much more sensitive guy. And I, I I get the sense, and I guess it's it's shown again in this movie, he felt like, as you say, the odd man out. I mean, he wanted to be creative. And we know the subsequent story, of course. I think you told us about this about a year ago. Uh, when the finally the breakup occurred and he, and he started to do all things must pass, the yeah. uh, first thing Richard Perry says is where the hell did all this music come from? He says I've been writing this for years, nobody would let me play it, uh, so I can understand his frustration. But notwithstanding all of that stuff, and as you say, Ringo's concerns, uh, you know, when when push came to shove and it was time to to roll tape, uh, these guys they they just worked together so beautifully.
4: Yeah, you know, Paul McCartney tightens up a lot. In episode two, where they're really coming down to that deadline that they set themselves to get a new album out. Um, John actually gets a little bit looser and more involved as time goes on in the documentary. George is just happy to be there. And especially um, when he has Ringo, because I think George and Ringo kind of understood that they had a job to do. But the Beatles could not be the Beatles unless Ringo is the drummer. You know, that that is just a stone cold fact. But when they're a band again, they kind of really, truly get back to the way that it used to be. Um, but look, when you have two of the greatest songwriters in history in the same band, it's going to be really tough if you're George Harrison to try to to get anything heard. And, you know, what what's interesting about it is when Billy Preston comes into the studio, he's just there to say hi. He's a legendary <laughs> Um, keyboardist songwriter one of the great black artists of the 60s busting down the doors for others to follow him in terms of race and culture um george and ringo start to kind of breathe a little bit easier because now there's a little bit of well we don't have to argue about every decision if billy says that this is good well that's still good because billy comes from an era of like early Motown and, and the blues and jazz. And that's where those four guys in the Beatles loved like that. He was the real deal. So the fact that Billy Preston comes in and just messes about messing with the equipment and helping create songs. I mean, there's a reason why Billy is the only artist ever to play with both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones is because he's that good. And he is a little bit undervalued and underappreciated still with keeping that band going.
0: Was there discussion, because uh, the the hint was always there that you know, I think the, the guys pretty much knew that the, George was going to leave the band, Yeah, uh, about replacing him. And Billy Preston's name came up, Clapton's name came up about, you know, well, we still want to be the Beatles. I guess we're going to be the Beatles with these guys. Was that ever serious?
4: Yeah, I, I actually had a conversation um, when I was working with Ringo Starr about this and and just, you know, I just wanted to find out how, how serious they were about bringing somebody like Eric Clapton in the picture. And Ringo said that his name was thrown around, but it was mostly um, it was mostly <laughs> it was mostly to hurt George just because they uh. knew they wanted to show him that. He could be replaced, and um, and it was at that really low moment in the group where um, John and Ball had no reason to think that they were really going to split. I think that they they knew that the end was near, but you know, I, I think out of sheer desperation. I mean, Eric Clapton was you know the greatest guitar player after Hendrix around that that period of time. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think that they were quite serious about it, but I think they also knew that that it, that would be that would be almost sacrilegious if they brought somebody else into the band as a full-time member, but he ended up did playing on, on while my guitar gently weeps on the, yep. on the Beatles white album.
0: Did they get this sense? And I, I was going to ask you about the rooftop concert. And I know i was listening on the Beatles channel on, on series six and Ringo pretty much stated that he says they want to do something grand. You know, they, they were talking about going to the pyramids or yeah. someplace. And they finally said, and we're going, I guess it was Ringo that said, we can just go to the roof if you want. And yeah, I had a great idea, <laughs> but, but, did they get the sense, Eric, that this was it? This was the end? This was going to be the last album?
4: Yeah, that, that's, I think, why Ringo says at the end of that session, you know, I hope that we pass the audition. Um, yeah. I, I, I think they all knew that, that, you know, time was ticking on the band. And, and it's such a shame because now, you know, I've been around enough record labels and enough artists and managers and mental health is such a big aspect of, of helping out artists continue their careers. They just needed a break. You know what I mean? Like they just needed yeah. a break from one another. They spent. They were the only four people in the entire world that knew what being in the Beatles was like. They couldn't go out anywhere without being mobbed. You watch those films and those clips of them just being the most popular people on the planet, both good and bad. And I think if they just went away for two years, got a solo album out of their system, we might have had the Beatles as long as... The Rolling Stones did, but, um, but I think, you know, I I think John really, really wanted to hang out with Yoko. I think he was just really done. And, and I don't think Yoko owner broke up the band. I think the Beatles ended up breaking up the band themselves.
0: Yeah, as uh, McCartney mentioned on Howard Stern's show a couple of years ago, he says, first of all, he says, stop blaming Yoko. It was not Yoko. He says it was Alan Klein, if it was anybody, the guy that was managing yeah, after right. Brian Epstein died and uh, wanted to take them. And he said that he kind of united us because we all hated him. I thought he was an idiot. Uh, you know, and, and that was probably maybe the final straw. Uh, But it's it's just fascinating to see this come together. I got a couple of minutes left here, but it's the obvious question. Uh, You know, the Beatles broke up 1969, 1970, I think it was when it became official uh, through legal terms. Uh, Here we are uh, heading into 2022. And this is the hottest (laughs) thing in show business right now. Uh, Peter Jackson spent years working on this. What is it? I mean, I mean, I, here I am asking you: How come the Beatles have, have stood the test of time? Uh, I mean, we listen to Beethoven and Chopin and, and all this stuff, and they—they've stood the test of time. And I know people are going to say, "Well, that's classical music." Uh, so is this in its own genre? Uh, there, there's yeah. there's something about this band, and something about these four individuals. It wasn't just their music, was it?
4: No, you know, it's funny Spotify just released their their top albums and songs of the year and the Beatles white album is the fifth most listened to classic album on that platform. Um the there's it, it's it's just you know, out of the 240 Beatles songs that they recorded, I think something like 190 of them have the word I, you or we in them. And I think that was their secret sauce is that they were really singing to each of us individually and they were the greatest musicians to ever kind of find each other. It was just, it, it Rick Rubin has a great line and uh, he's a, a world famous producer worked with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Paul McCartney among others. And he said that the Beatles are his proof of an existence of God. And that's the only way that I can think about it is that there's the Church of Music and the Beatles are the band and their religion to a lot of people. And I'm not a fanatic with like following them, but I've certainly read about them because I just find them utterly fascinating that that the, the the level of creativity that they still had over such a short period of time, nobody's still been able to touch them. And we're still listening to these songs and we're going to be listening to these songs 100 years from now.
0: Exactly. Well, it's available on Disney so far at, uh, uh, the, re- the response to this, and, and even the experts, the the experts, to it. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to it, Eric. Uh, just Clear up, up that schedule aside. of eight
4: hours. Go tell your family. <laughs> Put a sign on yeah. the door,
0: honey. Yeah. Guess how I'm spending my Christmas holidays? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Eric, exactly. always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Take Thanks care. Thanks so
4: much for having me, Bill. We'll talk soon.
0: Take care, Eric Alper, Public System music commentator. Who uh, know these guys? I mean, doing all these years in the business, uh, working with so many of these guys. So it's got to be kind of special for him and for everybody who loves the Beatles. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.